All right, we are in Matthew chapter 27. Why don't you open your Bible there? Navigate on your tablet or your smartphone. I guess if you don't have a smartphone, is, do you have a dumb phone? Is that? Well, what does that say? Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. The topic, the chief priests and elders of Israel refused to help Judas while themselves betraying Jesus to his death. The title of our message, Judas Priests. Let's have a word of prayer. (laughs) Well, that's what they were. Father, thank you for our morning. And Lord, as we open your word, it's always with a, a trembling anticipation because you're here in our midst to minister to us in power. And I pray that what you would bring to our hearts today would thrill us, Lord, that it would inspire us. Lord, that if there's someone here that's not a believer, it would save them. They would give their heart to you. That they would repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, could you give a comprehensive summary of the gospel in seven words or less? Christian Century Magazine issued a challenge for theologians to do just that back in 2012. I have to say their summaries were less than inspiring. In fact, They were lame. Here are a few, and yes, these are real. I couldn't make these up. So this is their idea. These are theologians. Their idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ, seven words or less. Here's the first one. Everybody gets to grow and change. Number two, we are the church of infinite chances. Number three, my favorite, In Christ, God's yes defeats our no. If I didn't know any better, I'd think that all of these were done at a head shop in Colorado. I think you get the idea, or I should say you don't get the idea, not really, of what the gospel is from any of those sentences. A reporter once asked theologian Karl Barth if he could summarize what he believed. Barth thought for a moment, and then he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, I like that. That gets me a little bit farther. But I think we should quit trying to be clever. How did the first proclaimers of the gospel summarize their message? In the very first message of the church age, on the day of Pentecost, when asked by the crowd, what must they do? Peter said, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In Acts chapter three, after healing the lame man, Peter addressed the crowd that gathered and he said, repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away. After taking the gospel to the house of Cornelius, Peter said, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. You can't help but notice the one word Peter repeats and emphasizes, it's the word repent. And it has to be a key word in any gospel summary. John the Baptist called Israel saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Matthew 9.13 says that Jesus Christ came to call sinners to repentance. Never forget, in all the messages that Jesus shared, Sermon on the Mount, uh, Olivet Discourse, all of the things he talked about, it was a call to repentance. In Luke 24, 47, the great commission Jesus gave there is that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all people. 
Acts 17, verse 30, the Bible says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Luke 15, 7 and 10 indicate there is joy in heaven over a sinner brought to repentance. Repentance is to change your mind and to agree with God, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, repentance is not just for non-believers. There are calls in the New Testament for saints to repent, most notably in Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus, where he urged them, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Our text in Matthew is gonna give us the opportunity to discuss repentance from a negative example. Two negative examples, actually. Both Judas and the religious leaders of Israel betrayed Jesus and failed to repent. In their bad examples, we will see two things repentance is not that people often think they are. I'll organize my thoughts around those two points. Number one, you need repentance, not religion. And number two, you need repentance, not self-righteousness. First of all, in verses one through five, let's have a look at religion. Now, I'm taking the approach throughout that Judas could have repented and been restored. You're free to disagree with me, but that is uh, where I think I land on that position. Now, what he did, he did of his own free will. God's providence saw to it Jesus was betrayed, according to prophecy, but Judas was not a person predestined to damnation against his own will. Jesus' tender warning at the beginning of their final supper testifies to his love for Judas and his reaching out to save him. When Judas came to betray the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus called him friend, again extending to him forgiveness and restoration if he were to take it. Now Judas will see Jesus for the last time. Verse one, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when, he had brought him, when they had brought him, excuse me, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Altogether, Jesus had six trials, three in front of the Jews and three in front of the Romans. Matthew doesn't record Jesus having been first taken to the house of Annas uh, before he was brought to the house of Caiaphas in the middle of the night. Now that it was daybreak, the Sanhedrin met again in the temple in a more legal way to ratify what they had illegally decided. So he had a total of three illegal trials uh, before the Jews. Judea was occupied and under Roman rule, meaning the Jews could sentence someone, but they had no power to execute anyone. For that, they would need the cooperation of the Roman governor. A charge of religious blasphemy would not mandate capital punishment from Rome. So they plotted how to portray Jesus as a revolutionary who was dangerous to Rome. Judas had a final encounter with Jesus. J. Vernon McGee writes and he says, the Lord Jesus was there when Judas came. As the chief priests and elders were leading him through that hall to take him to Pilate, here comes Judas. So verse three, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Judas was remorseful 
And his feelings were powerful enough to lead him to commit suicide. He genuinely regretted what he had done. He knew it was wrong. He even said, I have sinned. I know a lot of Christians that are in sin that refuse to call it sin. It seems like he was ready to repent and be restored. But notice, instead of addressing Jesus, he addressed the Sanhedrin. He looked to them to confess his sin and to be restored. They wouldn't help him, and they couldn't help him, even if they wanted to. They had neither the authority nor the power to forgive sins. Maybe you think it would have been impossible for Judas to approach Jesus as he was being led away. How impossible would it have been for him to shout to the Lord, Lord, forgive me? Judas was looking to the religion of his people, to Judaism, and to the law of Moses to provide him with forgiveness and salvation. To that end, he tried to give back the money he had been paid to betray Jesus. Sin doesn't work that way. You can't indulge yourself in sin, then realize what it has done to you and to others, and then simply act like nothing ever happened. I'm not talking about making restitution for wrongs you've done. Restitution can be a good thing. And often those who repent and are saved feel compelled to make wrong certain rights, or make right certain wrongs. Either way, they feel both ways. <laughs> People get confused. I never get confused, but they get confused. I'm talking about giving back the 30 pieces of silver. If I hadn't caught myself, then you could be wondering, is it Alzheimer's? Is he, is he into it? But see, I caught myself. I'm talking about giving back the 30 pieces of silver as if nothing had happened, kind of letting bygones be bygones. It was too late for that. The damage in this case, the condemnation to death of an innocent man, the damage had been done. Charles Spurgeon wrote, he said, sinner, you may sell heaven for a few carnal pleasures, but you cannot buy heaven by merely giving them up. We need something more than reform uh, in order to gain heaven. Sin is damaging, maybe not at first, but as you continue in it, it destroys. Not just you either. Sin affects all those around you, in your home, in your church, at work, everywhere. One of the things we don't really, I don't know, think about too much uh, when we're making decisions to commit certain sins is the impact it really is going to have on other people. And quite honestly, uh, when we sin, we are despising other people who oftentimes love us because we don't really care what it's going to do to them. We act like we do, we say we do, uh, you know, but ultimately we say, hey, this is what's best for me, this is what I wanna do, you're just gonna have to live with this. Uh, and so uh, it's sin obviously very selfish and it does hurt all those around us. We should hear James when he warns, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Remember that old Brill Cream hair product commercial? Their jingle? Brill Cream, a little dabble, do you? We like to think that we're only dabbling with sin. It seems so little, it seems so harmless. Why can't we learn from the fall of so many others before us that sin brings forth death? Verse five, then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. This is interesting, Judas threw the money literally into or as close to the holy of holies in the temple as he could get it. It was as close to God himself Judas thought he could get the coins. 
having failed to find any spiritual relief from the religious leaders, throwing the coins towards the Holy of Holies was a kind of appeal directly to God. Yet he had been with Jesus for over three years. He had been with God in human flesh. Jesus told Philip and the other disciples just a few hours before this, Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father claiming to be God. And so again, Judas is misdirected in his grief. He's misdirected in his remorse. He thinks he's going to God, but he's doing it religiously. When he had been with God, he had been walking with God. When he could have been forgiven immediately by confessing his sin aloud to Jesus Christ uh, and before God who is omnipresent. He was genuinely remorseful, but he was going through religious motions, throwing the coins where he he was taught God dwelt, when all he had to do was throw himself on the mercy of the omnipresent God. It prompted one commentator to note that perhaps Judas's greatest betrayal was that of refusing God's mercy. Now we get a little more information about Judas's suicide in the book of Acts. While choosing Matthias as Judas's replacement, according to the scriptures, this is what is said. This is Acts 1, 18 and 19. It says, now this man, Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. A few things to note about these two accounts. Judas threw the money in the temple and the religious leaders collected it and used it to buy a field. When it says this man purchased a field, it simply means it was his money that they used to purchase it. Apparently, Judas hung himself Then, as he was hanging, fell on rocks below, slicing him open. In fact, there's a tradition that says he hung himself on a tree branch and it broke before he died, causing him to fall and be sliced open. Now, the text doesn't say he committed suicide in the field they bought. In fact, had he died there, the field would have been rendered unclean and unusable. It was called field of blood either because as we'll see, it became a burial ground or because it was purchased with blood money, probably a combination of both. Let's talk about suicide for just a moment. Suicide is not an unpardonable sin. I can say that with authority because there is only one unpardonable sin, only one blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and that is the final complete rejection of Jesus Christ before you die. After death is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment, but the, the one unpardonable sin is to, is to die rejecting Jesus Christ. Yes, suicide is self-murder, and the Bible says thou shalt do no murder, but you have to ask yourself, are all murderers therefore unpardonable? And the answer to that, of course, is no. But you say a Christian would never kill himself or herself. Well, they shouldn't, but they do. Life is tragic. Life can crush you. You are sometimes given more than you as a person on your own can handle. Have you ever told somebody or been told, God will not give you more than you can handle? Don't raise your hand because I'm gonna tell you right now, that is a lie. When you tell somebody that, you are lying to them. You're giving them a false hope because they may be in a situation that is more than they can handle. And just think about it for a minute from a a calm point of view. 
Of course God is gonna let you be in situations that are more than you can handle so that, what, so that he can handle it for you. Uh, and, and so we need to be very careful about this. You can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens you, but even in the scripture, some people felt deep despair of life. Solomon, in his pursuit of pleasure, reached the point where he hated life, he says. Elijah was fearful and depressed and yearned for death. Jonah was so angry at God, he wished he died. Even the apostle Paul and his missionary companions, at one point, it says, were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. That's a sentence you don't normally highlight in your Bible. What if you today out in the courtyard said, hey, how you doing? And somebody said, I've despaired of life itself because it's far beyond my ability to endure. That'll knock you over. But you know what? Paul the Apostle, maybe the greatest Christian that we know of, was honest enough to say that. However, none of those men, Paul included, committed suicide. Solomon learned to fear God and keep his commandments, for he says this is the duty of all mankind. Solomon finally got to the point where he understood, hey, my life doesn't really belong to me. It belongs to God. Elijah was comforted by an angel. He was allowed to rest, given a new commission. Jonah received admonition and rebuke from God. God just said, hey, what are you doing? Paul learned that although the pressure he faced was beyond his ability to endure, the Lord can bear all things. He said, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so Paul said, I want to die. I'm being crushed so much. But I'm going to rely on God because he raises the dead. A God who can raise the dead can surely give me hope for living. So don't kill yourself. If you're thinking about it or ever do, talk to somebody, get help. Jesus died so you might live now and forever. He has good works that he has ordained for you to discover and perform for his sake. Your life belongs to him, not to you. Now we know that Judas is in Hades awaiting an eternity in the lake of fire. Peter tells us in Acts 1.25, he went to his own place referring to his eternal damnation. He is elsewhere called the son of perdition, which means doomed to destruction. Judas isn't lost because he committed suicide, but because he willfully rejected salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Judas was not saved, and instead of repenting and turning to the Lord, he regretted his sin and turned to religion. Religion had nothing to offer Judas in his hour of greatest need. All of the world's religions are bankrupt and they are an offense to the cross of Jesus Christ because they offer a substitute for his death. True, the cross in the Bible is called an offense. It's an offense in the sense that when a person looks at the cross, they have to realize, I'm a sinner, I deserve to die but Jesus died in my place. That's why the cross is an offense. But the religions of the world are offensive to the cross because they substitute some other method of salvation, some system of good works, some idea of reincarnation, all of these other things that are short of Jesus Christ, the God-man dying for you. As I like to point out all the time, Christianity is not a religion. 
A lot of people, even, even if we've been biblically taught, we have a tendency to think that Christianity started with Jesus Christ in the first century. Christianity started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. And God said, I'm going to come and deal with this myself. I'll, I'll die in your place. And then the whole drama of history is how God accomplished that through Jesus Christ. Religion comes pretty soon after that when Cain decides he's going to make up his own religion and bring fruit uh, to offer instead of a dead lamb. And God says, yeah, that's not going to cut it. But Christianity is not a religion. It's God's son dying in your place on the cross and it started right after the creation of man. All the other world religions are just that, man's efforts to get to God and they offend the cross of Jesus Christ because they fall short of it. Men and women who themselves do not know Jesus Christ cannot lead you to him and in him alone is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus, or Judas, excuse me, needed only to repent. We can't rewrite the story. I don't even want to speculate too much about Judas, but just think about it from a logical point of view. Judas came looking for help. He, he came to the wrong place, but he came looking for help to the religious leaders of his day, and they led him astray. Instead of pointing him to Jesus Christ, Instead of having anything to do with them, as a matter of fact, they just said, hey, what you've done, you're completely on your own. We don't want to have any complicity with you. How many multiplied millions upon millions of people began to have stirrings of conscience, regretting their lives, regretting their sin, maybe even calling it sin, went to some religious leader because that's the tradition of their family, and we're told something other than their need to repent and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. My own mom, years ago, when I was talking to her about uh, you know, salvation, when we first got saved, she told me she went to the priest. He told her as long as she was a Catholic and gave to the church, she had nothing to worry about. Really? Blind leaders of the blind? This, every religion, every religion does this multiplied millions or billions of times and people are on their way to hell who think that they're being made righteous. At least Judas understood that it did nothing for him. He had no relief. There was no transformation of heart or character. He knew that he had sinned. He just didn't know what to do about it because he had rejected Christ. Repentance, not religion, is what Judas needed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Judas becomes the poster boy of the sorrow of the world that produces death. Now, you need repentance, not self-righteousness, verses 6 through 10. There's an important use of words that we can easily miss in our English translation of the Bible. In verse 2, the word translated delivered is the same word in verse 3 translated betrayed. And so you could say the religious leaders betrayed Jesus to Rome just like Judas betrayed him to them. Judas betrayed Jesus, but so did all the religious leaders representing Israel, and so they were all Judases. These guys in the nation needed to repent. 
but they weren't even thinking about doing so. They were trusting in what they had always trusted in, adhering to the law of Moses in order to be righteous before God. I can't think of another passage of scripture that shows the absolute stupidity of thinking that self-righteously keeping certain laws and traditions will save you. At the very moment, these guys were knowingly sending an innocent man, their Messiah, to his death, they were meticulously keeping laws about the proper handling of blood money they had paid to have Jesus betrayed. It was only blood money because they had paid Judas to betray Jesus, and now that the money was on the ground, they said, we can't lawfully touch that. We can't put it in the church treasury because that would be blood money. What what are we going to do with that? No one seemed to think it's only blood money because we made it blood money. Maybe we should think about that. It's insane. Always depending on self-righteousness is insane. What's the difference, you might ask, between religion and self-righteousness? Well, in this context, religion is what Judas looked to to provide him with forgiveness and restoration after he realized he had sinned. In their self-righteousness, these Jewish leaders thought that they had not sinned at all. Sin wasn't something that entered into their mindset because they were so busy meticulously keeping certain laws that they thought were important. Self-righteousness is the poison fruit of religion. It keeps you from repentance. Verse six, the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, well, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. Why can't they see it? If blood money was so bad, how could their paying it to Judas in the first place be good? All I can say is we have an amazing capacity to lie to ourselves and to others about the things God calls sin. If you've ever gone to a family member or a friend who is in sin and tried to confront them, you know what I'm talking about. Their excuses are phenomenal. Rather than use one that I've heard, my favorite one from the Bible, Aaron in the Old Testament. Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting the Ten Commandments. He's gone for a long time. The Jews come to, uh, the children of Israel come to uh, uh, Aaron and they say, hey, Moses is not an experienced climber. He, we think he fell into a ravine. He's dead. We need a God. We're out in the middle of nowhere. We need a God to lead us. And Aaron says, well, bring me all your gold. He forges the golden calf. They start having a wild naked orgy, which I, obviously that's what you do when you have a golden calf for a God, right? Moses comes back, he's not happy about any of this, uh, and finally confronts Aaron, and Aaron said, I threw gold into the fire, and a calf came out. (laughs) Oy vey, I mean, you know, what's all that about? Moses didn't say, oh yeah, I can see where that happened, bro. People make the lamest excuses, but they, they... you know they can't really believe it because it's so stupid. But they tell you that anyway. You know, this isn't sin because of this. You just think it's sin. There's other ways of thinking about that. I'm undoing a previous sin by sinning now. I mean, there's a million excuses. It's crazy. Sin is what God says it is, period. And you're not going to repent Unless you look it square in the face and say, I have sinned. When Nathan came to David in the Old Testament, he says, you're the man. David, what did he do? He says, I have sinned before God and God alone. He realized 
that what God said was sin is sin, that adultery and murder really are sin, even if you're the king of Israel. And he dealt with that. Judas' attempt to return the coins ought to have pricked their consciences. It didn't. It only shows us how incredibly hard a self-righteous heart can be. Verse seven, they consulted together and brought with them the potter's field, bought with them, excuse me, the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood. The potter's field, in this case, not a field in which the ruined, broken pieces of pottery would be discarded. This potter's field was more like what we call a quarry where clay to make pottery was gathered. Once the layer of clay had been depleted from the soil, the field was no longer useful to potters and it would be sold for other uses. Walmart, for example. In this case, the chief priests bought it as a public cemetery in which they could bury strangers. It's probably a reference to Gentiles who, while visiting Jerusalem, died and needed to be buried, but they had no relatives in Jerusalem and could not lawfully be buried alongside Jews. Purchasing this field for this use, it's really quite a generous act. If they had plaques in those days, I'm sure they'd mention themselves on it, pointing to their big-hearted generosity. This field, formerly the potter's field, now Akel Dama, provided by the chief priests and elders for the use of the Gentiles. Wow, you guys, how could you get any more righteous than that? Mind you, the money had been used initially to capture an innocent Jew they planned to murder, but they saw no contradiction. I mentioned earlier that these guys were no help to Judas. He came spiritual help, seeking spiritual help from them, and they basically said, Judas, you're on your own. Self-righteous leaders are a little more subtle than that when you find them in the Christian community. A self-righteous Christian won't usually turn you away and tell you you're on your own. That doesn't seem very loving. But what they do is talk about everything you ought to be doing to be right with God, implying that they are doing all that and more. In other words, they say, well, this is what I do. I get up at 3 a.m. and I pray for two hours and then I do this and it's a spiritual thing and I do this spiritual thing and I, you know, I attend 17 Bible studies during the week and I, I tithe my mint and, you know, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but there are people who you go to them for help and they say, well, here's what you need to do. This is what I do, you do this. And if you will do these spiritual activities, you'll be made right and you'll remain right with God. But what they're doing is reducing your relationship with Jesus to something mechanical rather than something intimate and romantic. When you need spiritual help, seek out a person who will tell you who you are and what you are, not what you must do. What you do flows from that. You are in Jesus Christ. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven at the cross. He who began this good work in you, he said he'll be faithful to complete it. He is simultaneously building you in heaven a mansion and he's hoping to reward you when you make your glorious entrance home there. Religion could not save Judas. Self-righteousness could not save the Judases. Purchasing a field with blood money could not cancel out paying the blood money in the first place. Only a savior can cancel out sin. From the very beginning, God had promised to send a savior. It's all a matter of prophecy. Here's some prophecy in verses 9 and 10. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, 
whom they of the children of Israel priced and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Scholars spend a lot of time in these two verses, but that's why they are so scholarly, I guess. You see, the actual quote seems to come from the book of Zechariah, but Matthew attributes it to Jeremiah, and if you're a scholar, this gets your juices flowing. Now, the quick answer is that the Jews divided up their scriptures into three parts, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. The first five books were the law, even though some of the books, like Genesis, weren't really law. Likewise, there were books in the Psalms division that were not Psalms. Since Jeremiah was the first of the prophetic books in that section, often the whole section would be called Jeremiah. For example, I like the Lord of the Rings trilogy of movies, okay? So let's say I love the, I was talking to you and I said, I love that scene in the Lord of the Rings where, uh, you know, they're uh, crowning Aragorn as the king. Well, you would understand that I mean that it's actually in the Return of the King movie, but it's in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And that's, that's the idea. So if I'm a Jew and I say, Jeremiah said this, and then I read some of this, what I'm saying is in the prophets, these things were said. And it doesn't cause any confusion to a Jew, just to a Gentile who wants to start, start a, a war, I guess. And so that's one of several possible explanations. Another one is that since Jeremiah and Zechariah both mentioned the potter in his field in their prophecies, this is a blending of those two guys, giving Jeremiah priority since he was considered the major prophet. We're not ignoring this, but it's not a problem. And it's not Matthew's point. His point Everything that was happening to Jesus had been carefully prophesied centuries before, including the death of his betrayer and the buying of the potter's field. Incredible. Jesus was going to the cross according to the plan of God so that mankind could be commanded to repent and believe on him for salvation. By dying on the cross, all men can be drawn to him by the Holy Spirit. He is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. I wouldn't even try to summarize the gospel in seven words. But if I did, or if you do, get the word repent in there prominently. Now normally we think of non-believers like Judas and the Judases of Israel needing to repent. And that's true. But we've seen that believers too are called upon to continue to repent. I mentioned the church at Ephesus and uh, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. What does repentance look like among believers? When Jesus urged the believers in Ephesus to repent, it wasn't a call for them to start doing more good works to get back into his good favor. They were already doing all the good works they could possibly be doing. Good works follow repentance as a consequence, not as the cause. So you can be doing all kinds of good works, but still need to repent. Jesus pointed out, he said to them, you have left your first love for me. And it was precisely because they had settled into a works-based relationship that they needed to repent. Their repentance was a matter of realizing their intimacy with Jesus had been abandoned. The solve was to return to the passion of that first love and to do their works from love, not law. And so you and I as Christians, we also need to repent. If you're in sin... You need to agree with God that it is sin and turn away from it and seek the Lord's forgiveness. 
He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Maybe you don't think you're in any particular sin, but are you really in first love with Jesus Christ or has your relationship become super mechanical? Would you say you're proud of yourself because of your devotions and your church attendance and your church service and all of these things? Because the Lord would say, hey, that's great, but I don't feel like you love me anymore. Those of you who got saved later in life, you're at a little bit of an advantage here than those who've been saved all their life because you remember or can remember the love of your spouse. You can remember when you came to know Jesus Christ and your heart was broken and you loved him so much. You didn't care what situation you were in. Everything was gonna be fine because you had met the risen living Jesus Christ and you, were in love. you didn't care about anything other than him. You can think back to that time and recall it. If you're not a believer, you're among the Judases. I don't say that to be mean or weird, it's just true. But you can be saved, the Holy Spirit is here, working on your heart, freeing your will so that you can be drawn to Christ, make a decision for him. For us believers, we need to call sin what it really is and confess it, and we need to be certain our love for Jesus is our first passionate love of the engagement and never something based on our good works. Let's pray.